This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. I want to give a special thank you to Harriet Stevens for requesting today's guest. Our guest has been on my long list of people to talk with, but because of Harriet, I reached out to him much sooner than expected. Today's guest has dedicated his life to rewilding the honeybee population. He touches on aspects of our life with bees that are too frequently overlooked by the industry. Heart and soul, birth rights, ethical and moral standards that place the needs of the bees above the commodity of honey. Because of his efforts, there is now a movement to reintroduce honeybees into wild nest cavities, a rehabilitation to bring bees back to nature. Through this gesture in honoring the identity of Apis mellifera, he hopes to refocus how the global community looks at our lives with honeybees. In this episode, we are taken on a journey that I hope will bring you as much joy as it has brought to me and a new lens to look through. Friends, meet Mikhail Thiele. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I am good. I... I spent the last half hour sort of finding just the right spot to sit down and, and talk with you. I've settled on a very sunny spot out in my garden, surrounded by lavender, yarrow, and shasta daisies. And I have a hen that hatched some eggs two weeks ago. And so mama hen is here with her babies and they're foraging around and it's just a really nice spot to be. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. That sounds very, that sounds just perfect to talk. I will try to match that by stepping outside the house. <laughs> yes, I call Sitting it. on the porch. I call it the mobile recording studio. And I had thought about finding a place near one of my beehives to sit, but here in the garden, there's plenty of bees coming and going. So that, that'll work. <laughs> yes. So tell me, you are in the Portland area, is that true? Yes, yes. And we met, oh, two or three years ago. You came and did a seminar with Portland Urban Beekeepers. The the seminar that you did for us is still talked about. It still has a lasting impact on our members. And I know that we had a lot of people from the Preservation Beekeeping Council in attendance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the things that people really enjoyed about your talk is that your approach to working with bees is completely different than what we're used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, thank you for that compliment that people really um, felt like it was inspiring and um and moving in maybe different ways. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. That's really great feedback. So when I go somewhere to listen to a speaker, uh, to be moved and that it, it's uh, relevant to what I do and that 
uh, it's kind of engaging, possibly even after the presentation, that I, mm-hmm. there are things that take away mm-hmm. for further contemplation and exploration, and it makes and if it makes you um, just evaluate what is and makes you curious to try other things, that's mm-hmm. that's really beautiful. I think one of the things that I remember you saying that has really stuck with me is when you talked about the birth rights. Mm-hmm. And that's something I yeah. I get chills just thinking about it. I've never heard any anybody talk about bees in that way before. Yeah, it's um it's really a powerful place, a powerful vantage. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. It's so tempting to look into certain areas of our life, and in this case, it may be agriculture, and to have a, a narrow vantage or um, not being aware of anything outside or right very close to our default vantage. Mm-hmm. And we, it's kind of a challenge in this time we live in. We are so conditioned in a certain way that it doesn't encourage necessarily to branch out. Right. Uh, we are, we just in, we inherited a mechanical worldview, and this is kind of in a process of falling apart. Mechanics, right? Mm-hmm. New things can come up, and those are not really new things. Those are just things we lost track of, and they were not in our awareness, like birthright. Our standard beehive boxes; those really are no comparison to the hollow of a tree. Right, exactly. It's very, very true. I think, you know, what what is always quite rewarding is to study, uh, well, we could say, um, yeah, instinctual preferences, we can can say. It's rewarding to understand the biology, but also the emotional realm of honeybees, and to see what are the instinctual preferences, what are natural conditions, because that is something which will reveal everything we need to know if we wanted to be steward and also um, respectful and um, ethic and moral steward. And by and it's so sim- it can be so simple, you know. We just observe, we just research uh, honeybees in the wild, how Apis mellifera lived for millions of years. And the first thing we'll see is that um, that they lived in the womb of trees. Mm-hmm. So they were um, enveloped by another being. They wouldn't even live within something which is dead. But the main nest site was within another being. They're kind of almost like a twin being living together with, with trees. And the beauty of this reach, of, of witnessing honeybees in the wild is that we can look at it for, on different dimensions, on different levels. So you can look at the, you know, the physics of it, like, for example, what do tree nests, what kind of qualities do tree nests represent? What kind of features have they integrated? And so the physics would be, for example, insulation value uh, or mm-hmm. nest volume. Yes. And those are things Thomas Seeley has written quite a, a lot about it. And it's really amazing to see studies which compare thin-walled length profiles 
with well-insulated log hives or, or, or nests in trees and what it does on the on a physiological level. Mm-hmm. And um, what's his name? This English guy, he wrote a paper. I can't remember his name right now. However, he looked at, um, at clustering, that for mainstream beekeeping, the clustering is kind of within the range of normal. That, you know, everybody tells you once it's really cold, they cluster. Mm-hmm. But uh, Mitchell, his name is Mitchell. But when he, when he looked at this, he realized that clustering in natural tree cavities, a natural arboreal nest for honeybees, that clustering is very much kind of a survival gesture. It will happen only at minus 20 Fahrenheit, where the onset of clustering in Langstroth boxes can be already around, if I remember right, around 45 Fahrenheit or so. Mm-hmm. And what does clustering mean? Clustering, as it turns out, is not something normal within the metabolic range or the, the gesture of this animal. It is really shivering. It's just like us too. When if we are so cold that we 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 walk through our day with goosebumps because we're so cold, that's not good for us. That will be an, have an impact on our health. So and and also if to look at the microbiome, it has an impact on the microbiome of of Aphis mellifera when it goes into clustering because. Temperature, this animal, everything is so sensitive to temperature ranges. Just think like Jürgen Tauts from, Professor, Professor Jürgen Tauts from Germany, he uh, wrote this beautiful book, The Buzz About Bees, and where he could show, right? Where he could show that minute temperature differences within the broodness would make different bees, bees from different Temperature hatching from different temperature zones would be completely different, and we're talking about a fraction of one Fahrenheit. Wow! That tells us how temperature governs physiology, metabolic processes, um, and determines skill sets and other things. It's just mind-boggling. And you see, now we're getting all the way into it right away. The moment. <laughs> The moment we realize those things, then the next simple step is, oh, okay, so how can I provide for this animal in a way that all of this is covered? And then I look at the length of height and the insulation, the R value is under one, three-quarter inch wood. And I, it's pretty obvious now that I see they would be too cold or too warm, that outside temperature fluctuations are transmitted right away into it. There's no buffer, there's no protection. And so you see, once you see that, it's like, oh, you know, okay, I have a lung survive, but it is, it is not allowing me to provide for this animal. And so what can I do? And that then in that moment, it becomes so exciting and creative. Mm-hmm. And also, it's this moment where we become a different kind of steward. Because now, we 
we allow ourselves to step outside of the box, the box which was handed down from generation to generation to us, you know. And now, like we said in the very beginning, our awareness has broadened, and now how can we mirror that in hardware and also management? It's so simple. As backyard beekeepers, we are able to make modifications to our hives and get creative with solutions to this problem by providing better insulation. And also, uh, there's a trend now of providing eco-floors in hives to provide space for more organisms to live, sort of in a similar way that they would in a tree. Yes, I think you're completely right. I fully agree with that, that as backyard beekeepers, um, as individuals, um, we have the luxury of more freedom because we're not tied to any kind of larger agricultural systems. Yes. And um, and also, we live with a smaller number of, of bees, probably. And that shows strongly when uh, I presented in Holland last fall at that uh, Learning from the Bees conference. Oh, yes. And it was a conference which, which brought together small-scale beekeepers, backyard beekeepers, scientists, activists, and so forth, artists. And it was very powerful to have put this, all those people together so that the scientists could hear from backyard beekeepers and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And there was no monetary interest in there, no lobby interest approaching scientists and universities, but it was really for the benefit of honeybees. And we all were trying to solve problems. And the scientists were really interested in see and learning from people in the field what was happening. Mm-hmm. They also were exposed to lots of innovation because that's where innovation is happening, uh, small-scale beekeeping, backyard beekeepers, mm-hmm. um, people who just branch out. Do you think that science has been too focused on the industrial part of beekeeping? Oh, God, yes. I mean, you go to UC Davis here in California, and this is just... Oh, this is not, <laughs> that's not research what is done there. This is so tied to the agricultural community, to all the big money, big pharma. That's where the funding comes comes from, mm-hmm. and you 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 see it. It's very clearly. This is this is very unfortunate that research is tied to funding, which is coming from an industry which is not really interested in in the benefit of research to the honeybees, but to the industry. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. and, but you see it right away, but then you have more independent researchers like Thomas Felix, for example, and um, you'll see very different research, very different data, very different focuses and studies come out. What was beautiful at some point in, on the, in that conference in Holland was to see that the researchers and people like you and me in the field we all had discovered so much congruence 
for example, allopathic treatment, and we both sides said we have to educate legislators because wherever there's a treatment requirement coming from legislators, they need to be educated. They need to know that scientific data shows us that that is the wrong path. It, it will generate profit for those who want to sell that product, the poison, the, treat, the medication, but it doesn't serve the world, really. Okay. And it was very powerful to see this, and I think that's one big part of our what should be our work is to educate legislators. That was something else that you spoke about when you were up here a few years ago that I hadn't really considered. And you were saying that when the Langstroth hive became the standard and then there was this requirement of hives having to have those removable frames, that it was put in place because of the lobbyists. They weren't thinking about the benefit of the honeybee. They were thinking about the benefit of industry. Right. Exactly. And it was, you know, that was in the, the Langstroth Hive was invented in the late 19th century at the peak of the Industrial Revolution. And back then, mechanics ruled the Western Hemisphere, that it was the death of enchantment. It was the vanishing of emotions. Uh, and it all was abandoned for the sake of a very strong reductionism. It became just moving parts. It was the end of soul. It was the end of persona. It became so impoverished. And that's when the Langstroth Hive was invented. And um, that was the new paradigm, movable frame. And it, I often think it, I, I often think in terms of it was um, eliminating a, a vision, a vantage, mm-hmm. and an awareness. And that was then the new normal and the really preferred um, mode of operation. Mm-hmm. And right during that time frame, bees in the, in the Langstroth Hive, in this very modern new system, bees got sick with, with uh, brood diseases. And the old fashioned beekeepers back then who had lived, had their bees in skeps and logs and you name it, they called that the beekeeper's diseases because they saw that the foul brood or brood diseases in general were actually induced by management techniques and that new hive system. And like you mentioned, lobbying and other forces finally convinced legislators to adopt those regulations, which at this point, I believe all states in this country adopted. And that requires to have movable frames in the brood nest, which Professor Jürgen Tauz calls the social uterus. So it is, to us, it seems quite normal, right, to have movable frames in hives, and yet that is a relatively new phenomenon. And like I said, the moment you quote Jürgen Taut as a professor of entomology, calling it a social uterus, 
you may hesitate a moment in opening up your hive and shuffling around frames in the brood nest. Anyway, just coming back to diseases, the regulation then required movable frames in the brood nest so one could inspect for foul, for brood diseases. And so it, it, to sum it up, instead of outruling the causes of brood diseases, they went with the requirements of movable frames. So it completely missed the point. It did not address the cause of diseases at all. And that's what we live with. And now it's a hundred whatever, hundred years later, and now we live in the twenty first century. Uh, we live in a time where um, contemporary bi biology, life sciences, are going through a huge shift similar to physics in the 1920s. The very notion of what is an organism is dramatically shifting. It's kind of falling apart. Oh, yeah. And not, so within that, so that is shifting. And I, just to give you one little idea what this is about, and I, I'm not claiming to know it all, but now, now the new concepts are those of holobionts and hologenomes, which means that any organism is now seen as a different kind of whole, which includes the microbiome. In the case of humans, at least half of every single cell in and on our body is not human. And how can we approach disease without knowing what this other half is about? Yeah, And not only that, so that opens up a whole new way of being with as a, 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 that whole, opens up a whole new way of approaching medicine, healing, illness, health. Um, it's completely unexplored territory, and it, it shifts the contemporary paradigm to a whole new level. And maybe one more word on holo-genome. It is now becoming apparent that our DNA reveals the history of interconnections between various organisms throughout space and time. And it is not completely independent of its environment, but rather always and only interacting with all genetic information within us, which comes from a multitude of, of other organisms. In other words, every single shift within our own genetic information is influenced by the whole, by all other organisms, by their genome. It is, the DNA is not an independent something which is self-governed. Some parts are, but mostly what I'm trying to say is that we are right now losing control of this concept of conventional genetics, that it becomes the world with, which is always in relationship with our genetics, with our DNA.
we are not this independent being surfing the world. It is we are being surfed anyway. So <laughs> you see, you see the the notion of an individual is right now undergoing a dramatic shift to an extent where some researchers in life sciences right now say there is not such a thing as an individual. We cannot make a case. We cannot define anything as such anymore, but rather it only can be understood within the vast web of all different life forms. Yeah. Where I was going with this was that I was trying to paint an image of where we are now in relationship to 100 years ago when those regulations came into place. Yeah. And the first leg is the radical shift within life sciences on one side, on one hand. On the other hand, it is we entered the sixth extinction. We entered the, the geological period of the Anthropocene or the different names for the time we, we entered or the Great Acceleration. That is the fundamental threat to life on Earth. Um, the, the threat to biodiversity. The UN just published this big report in April of this year. Mm. Climate crisis. We live in a world of crisis, or we could say we live in a world where everything is leaving that what countless generations had lived with. Stability. Is we are losing the stability of the Earth life sphere, and it's human-induced. So we are now talking about survival of the planet. When you, I mean, I don't have to tell you, look into life, into sciences, right? Climate science. It is a call to consciousness. It, it is a call to action. It is also a call to ethics and moral. Mm -hmm. And now I painted this long loop just to come back to regulations. Those regulations were written a hundred years ago in a very different time. We are living in a time where we have to respond to a reality and hopefully be guided by ethics and moral. And this urge to become stewards and to do everything we can to safeguard life for future generations to come. And in a time of crisis, the, the, the Chinese character, right, has always two, and you probably heard that. The, the, the two characters are danger, so the, the whole crisis is danger and opportunity. And that's where we live. That's how I see it. We live in a time of opportunity, in a time of creative opportunity, where, like you said earlier, backyard beekeepers are on that edge of freedom to walk, to move with that creative opportunity mm -hmm. and to realign certain things back to integrate that birthright we spoke in the beginning about, to integrate the parameters of this birthright back into our stewardship uh, towards Apis mellifera. 
and how how radical or maybe we should say the question is how faithful can we be to that birthright can we really follow it and put this and grant that birthright again so that's i think one aspect of our contemporary life which is really important yeah. to keep in our awareness that what people call beekeeping apis mellifera is not about honey anymore we passed that time frame yes. that door is closed <laughs> yes <laughs> and a new door opened and i think it's it's a really beautiful one a beautiful one which is to learn about this animal this being in a very new way the moment we drop the commodity thinking the moment we drop the how much honey can i get mm-hmm. and enjoy that what opens them that will reveal something which is way beyond the enjoyment of honey it is very close to soul and heart and uh, to a lot of our fundamental questions of who am i and what can i do in this world how can i serve in this time of opportunity and crisis and you have certainly responded to that call by engaging the community in a totally new and different way and you have video series on YouTube that I find incredibly provocative and you've also been doing salon can you talk a little bit about that the arboreal apiculture salon yes yeah it um I started out with that I was missing talking to people about certain kind of topics. And yes, there is sometimes a meeting with someone else and I can talk or was on the phone, but I felt like, how about we create a forum, a global forum where you can dial in, if you like to join, you dial in from wherever you are, from whatever continent or country, and you can talk to people about things you may not be able to talk to with other people. Yeah. Or maybe you can, but you enjoy being in a group of people to inspire and be inspired by. Um, and I, I really enjoy collaboration. To come together as a group of people and see what's happening in the world. What did you do? And what do you pick up? Where's your curiosity going? Lots of questions. You don't have to have an answer. But that was my basic motivation. And I wanted to do it with someone together. So I asked Jonathan Powell from England whether he would join me. And he said, yes, he would. And now since, I don't know when we started, earlier this year we started. And we have now what we call an arboreal apiculture salon, which is online. It uses a video platform. So where it's video uh, and audio, and we sometimes invite people, the interview, and sometimes we have discussions afterwards. For the last salon, we invited um, traditional tree 
beekeepers oh. from Belarus and Poland, and they showed us uh, what they were doing over there in Eastern Europe. And they have the benefit of having inherited very the, the tradition of tree apiculture. Yes. And they're, they're, yeah, right. And this is ren- renaissance of tree apiculture coming. And they interviewed the last survivors almost, and they're discovering all writ- old written manuals and other documents in Polish and German and Russian. Oh, wow. Uh, and they, yeah, and they're, they're of course, they're offering classes and courses. And, and it was really amazing to spend time with them in the salon. And everybody was quite inspired. <gasps> and and it, we call it Arboreal Apicultural Salon. And what Arboreal stands for is not just bee nests in logs and trees, but Arboreal today stands for a birthright. Because Arboreal describes the indigenous nest environment, you mm-hmm. could say. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are focusing on and the creativity coming with it, placing it into the 21st century. If um, the information about the next salon is always um, on our website, and in my case, on my end, it's apisarborea.com, and it's always under events. And then I think the Natural Beekeeping Trust in the UK uh, has it on there. And I think I need to come and join one. Yeah. I um <laughs> I am very lucky in that I get to keep many different types of hives, but I do have one tree hive in yeah. my yard. And it's very special. It's very special to me. What is it a log hive or what do you have? It um it's a section of tree trunk that was removed from somebody's yard with a colony living in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's about four feet tall, and it has about a three and a half inch diameter hole in the very center of it, and that's their entrance. Yeah. And it had a colony in it when it came to live in my yard. And that went on to yeah. live two more years. And then last year, it swarmed about eight times. And yeah. after the eighth swarm, it just didn't quite bounce back. And it ended up that it died in September. But this spring, a new swarm moved into it. Oh. Yeah. And I had... Lucky I had, you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I'm not surprised at all. I, I knew they would find it and choose it. Um, after the colony had died out, I removed some of the combs from it because they were just very black. And so I removed it knowing, you know, when a swarm moves in, they'll they'll rebuild. They'll put in some yeah. new comb. And, and they have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think it's really wonderful for me to have this experience where yes you can have a a bee colony that is in a super insulated um, cavity with very texturized interior without any screens without ventilation ports yeah after your visit to portland i made some modifications to my langstroth hives to provide them year-round insulation 
and yeah. uh, a, a different entrance up at the top and they've propolized it and they've done really well with, with these lids that I made for them. So I'm going to continue yeah. to do that. And I, and I encourage anybody with backyard beehives to do the same, like, like we were talking about, be creative and think about, you know, ways where you can yeah. make the hive more suitable. Right, exactly. Yes. Yes, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you're doing that. Near the end of my interviews, I always ask guests if there's anything else that they want to talk about. To think about sentience and our relationship with honeybees. And to illustrate what I'm what I'm trying to say and point to is let's say you are with an other animal which has a face like chickens, mm -hmm. even more pronounced in mammals, like cats and dogs or horses. So do you have a dog or cat? I do. I have a dog. Okay. So what's her or his name? Winnie. She's a little terrier. Winnie? Yeah, she came from the shelter. <laughs> okay. So there's Winnie, and you, when you see Winnie's face, you know right away, what's happening because Winnie is communicating also through her face in such a pronounced and strong way that we know exactly whether Winnie is thirsty, thirsty, happy, not happy, wants something, uh, doesn't want something, doesn't like something, mm -hmm. all of that. So there is this faith which allows us to have that kind of intimate um, communication, yeah, but it's also that faith. Only because when you, when you have the faith, it is so easy for you to know how to care for her, to yes. do what she needs, to recognize what she needs, um, and also of course for her to tell you things. I would say that we can uh, feel, observe, perceive, and act on sentience that we know. Winnie's feelings and uh, her psyche, all those things we know, you know. And I would make a case for applying all of the above to our relationship with Apis mellifera. That when we go to our bees, not to get lost in hardware, not to get lost and blinded in some sort of management, but first to create, to develop a relationship which represents sentience. Um, I find it really important and it is a game changer. It makes you become a different person, but also it helps to reveal who this being truly is. And um, maybe one more little add-on. Because we think it is so important, we actually will dedicate our next arboreal apiculture salon to the subject, to the topic of sentience. Oh. And we'll see. But that is something which I find really important because I think it belongs into the opportunity we all live with to be in the 21st century with mm -hmm. all the challenges. Mm -hmm. and the awareness of sentience 
have to be part of it because it's beneficial all the way around. It has been so cool to talk with you. I know. It's so nice. So neat. You're sitting out there with your chickens and I sit out here on my porch. Oh yes, tell tell me about what what's your scenery right now? What are you what's around? Um, there are lots of trees, uh, all kinds of trees. There are two two little redwoods, and with little, I mean, they're like forty feet tall, <laughs> but they're young. And there's a, this beautiful willow tree in front of me with dead uh, branches, right, crowned with dead branches, and she is so beautiful. Mm. Oaks and some native oaks. And um, then I have a liquid amber tree to my left, which has uh, a log hive in it. And there's one thing I can tell you about that, Mandy. To have log hives in deciduous trees is so beautiful. Because uh, as we go through the season, the canopy is shifting, of course, in color, but also in density. And in winter... There are no leaves, and the sun can reach the log right away. Oh. And uh, the flight and the flight pattern is so beautiful in the spring before before leaf leafing out, and then slowly the leaves come once with a warmer day. And right now it's com- completely shaded, and it's so mm-hmm. thick that the flight path is different. They have to fly up on one side and to find a, an opening in the canopy and on the back side there's a little left a little alley uh-huh. way out um, and then comes fall it goes the other way again so it's really beautiful wow how many of those tree hives have you placed to date oh i i can't even count them <laughs> there's so many and it's all over the north bay mm-hmm. people are so open to this now mm-hmm. even I, I mean, I started with that in 2007, and people reacted quite differently then. More reserved and um, not so sure. But now, just 12 years later, you say log hive and bees. People say, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, because that's where they live for millions of years. And you don't even have to say anything because people sense it. and. That's interesting, Mandy, because it shows how awareness has shifted. People just know intuitively things which they may not have Mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. And that's really encouraging and makes me very happy. Well, thank you. That was very (laughs) sweet to talk to you. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, what is the correct pronunciation for your name? I've heard it pronounced oh, it's, several ways. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it spells like Michael, but it's pronounced Michael. Michael. Yeah, very good. Yeah, Michael. <laughs> it is. It is this. I grew up in Germany, so it's the German way of saying Michael, but it's also just a Hebrew way of saying Michael. Uh, Michael. It's just. It's just a different pronunciation of that word, of that name. Okay, so Michael. Even <laughs> very good, Michael. And um, I would say eighty percent of English speakers have a hard time with that. <sighs> in the middle. My wife cannot say it, so 
So don't, I think what I'm saying is don't worry about it. Just okay. call me John or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then what about your last name? Tila. Tila, okay. Yeah. Tila, is it? You're the H. Okay. This has been such a pleasure and what a beautiful afternoon to sit in my garden and talk with you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, vice versa. <laughs> yeah, that was really, I enjoyed it deeply. And I'm so happy that you have this arboreal nest in your oh, landscape yes. right in front of you. Oh, okay. I will talk with you soon. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank I you. appreciate it. Take care. <laughs> okay. Bye. 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 To learn more about Mihail's work, you can head over to my blog at waggleworkspdx.com or visit him online at gaiabees.com where you'll find links to his YouTube channels and the Apis Arborea website where you can sign up and participate in the arboreal salons that we discussed in today's episode. If you've been enjoying the show and want to become a patron, visit patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw. This show is 100% listener supported, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening, sharing on social media, for leaving reviews, and for taking the time to send me emails with comments or requests. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Confidential is a Waggle Works production and is written and produced by Mandy Shaw. The chickens that I had told you about, they hopped over the fence into the neighbor's yard while we were talking. <laughs> oh, they have broadened their awareness. <laughs>